Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey everyone, I promised you special guests and today I have brought you one. Um, this colleague of mine, I'm, I'm just going to read her bio, which, which I find so impressive. Um, Paula Hall is a UK registered sexual and relationship therapist and sex addiction therapist. She's clinical director of the Laurel Center and course director on the accredited Diploma in Sex Addiction Counseling. This is in the UK. Author of nine books. Oh my God, Paula, I just finished my ninth book. We are we are even. <laughs> Author of nine books, including Understanding and Treating Sex and Porn Addiction, Sex Addiction and the Partner's Perspective, Confronting Porn and the Soon-to-be-Released Sex Addiction, A Guide for Couples. Paula, you are uh, a crazy busy person like me. Now, we've been friends for a while, so I'm really yeah. glad to say and I've watched you just e- explode with with really brilliant creative work in the last number of years. And I have to ask you, like, what's happened over there? You know, we've been dealing with sex addiction since, what, Pat Carnes in the late 70s, and it's been this slowly moving thing until finally we're getting to a point, I think, of understanding and acceptance. It seems like the path was different over there. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think sex addiction was really... Oh, I said, it was around. Of course it was around, but we didn't really have a label for it or know very much about it at all say oh 20 years ago yeah I don't think it was really um, on our radar Mm. at all Uh, I mean for me personally I went so I'm a sex therapist I went to a sex therapy conference with my professional organization and we had a couple of speakers talking about sex addiction and at that stage, I was working in private practice, and um, I had I actually trained in drug addictions, worked in a drug agency for a couple of years. Oh gosh, twenty eight years ago. I'm so old. Mm-hmm. Twenty eight years ago, before training as a sex therapist and a couple counsellor. Um, and as this guy was kind of talking about how well, sex can become addictive. It just made sense. And I had had two, three, four clients in private practice who kept betraying their partners. This is pretty much pre-internet, by the Mm -hmm. way. So this is mostly paper porn then. So porn addiction wasn't such a big thing. Um, They kept betraying their partners. They were having multiple affairs. They were sleeping with sex workers. They loved their partners. Um, They were devoted fathers, pillars of the community, and they kept doing this stuff. You've heard this a million times. And suddenly this made sense. I had worked on their childhood. We had done stuff on their trauma. We had looked at attachment, but it didn't actually change their behavior Mm -hmm. at all. And recognizing this as an addiction and the need for those practices 
pragmatic relapse prevention strategies, those cognitive behavioral techniques to deal with the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the distortions, the, uh, the faulty thinking patterns. None of that, basically, addiction work. And, of course, the recovery work. This was all new to me. This was a model that I hadn't thought to apply since I'd been working in drug addiction. Um, So that was the point at which I really started looking at doing further training. Patrick Carnes came over to the UK. When was that? A long, about 12 years ago. Oh, about 12 years ago, yeah. Yeah, to do Mod 1. I did Mod 1. Unfortunately, you didn't come back because there wasn't enough interest at the time, Mm. interestingly. And that says something about what's changed. And since then, I've done more training, started writing my book. It took me four years to get the first book published because every publisher I went to said there's no market. Um, so by then I'd written five other books that you know for big publishers that had done very, very well. So it wasn't criticism of me as an author. It was because there is no market in sex addiction. Or or we don't want to touch this subject. We're not interested in printing about this. Also, it's just what is what is it? Yeah, maybe the Americans have it, but no, we don't have, yeah. have that kind of stuff. Um, it's, it's the best selling of all my books. That first book I wrote on sex addiction um, and we now have our own training program over here as well. And it is, uh, yeah, I mean, six, seven years ago, I took somebody on to work with me. So that they went from, we doubled in size from one to two. Um, we are now a team of 20 people, um, two locations in the UK, and I'm training yeah, all around the world. Um, and particularly in Europe, and it, I think it's interesting what you said about it can't just be a um, you know moral issue that we have in the States. My program's delivered in Amsterdam, in Copenhagen. These are countries even more so than the UK that are known for their liberal sexual attitudes. Yes. Uh, but they still are seeing a massive increase in problems with sex and porn addiction. And of course, as everybody knows, a lot of that is because of the internet and the accessibility. But yeah, abs- it, it's it's a massively growing issue all around the world, isn't it? So you came along at the right time with the right... And of course, everyone thinks, oh, this Paula Hall person, she just showed up with all this information when you've really been toiling away for years and years and years. But Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so you know, I've had many conversations. I remember walking streets with you, Paula Hall, where we would talk about the differences in America and uh, in the States versus working overseas. And yeah. you know, one of the issues that... I mean, there are two issues that come up for me. One is the one we mentioned, which is that conservatism and, and moral issues in American culture make it so much easier to pathologize or call things sex addiction that aren't. And so one of the first conversations I remember us having was really talking about, you know, no homosexuality isn't sex addiction and no gender identity isn't sex addiction. And just really understanding, you know, what healthy sex was in a variety of alternative ways from heterosexual marriage. And that that even if someone didn't like that, that wasn't sex addiction. But I I remember thinking, I you know, thinking about how you were struggling to get things moving over there. And I guess I wonder if was there a moment, was a thing that something that happened, or was it just a sheer weight of the problems of the internet and porn i'm thinking maybe you did a ted talk that's what i'm thinking yeah that's relatively recently that's only three years ago yeah that certainly has has really helped get the message across i think it is it has been a different issue over here in the uk it hasn't been so much about morality and the sex side the problem and the objections have been more about the addiction side so the vast majority of therapists in the uk working in sex addiction and certainly those training in sex addiction including myself are accredited sex therapists we are sexologists we have come 
from that background. We, um, you know, I had tons of training in working with sexual diversity, working with um, paraphilic behaviours, offending behaviours. That that was my bread and butter. That's what I did all the time. It was the addition of this word addiction that was the issue and it and in the states of course a lot of you have come from an addiction background and then are picking up on the sexology stuff right, right. Um, but it's been so so my battle has been more with the addiction people saying you need to understand sex whereas what i'm very aware of in the states it's been your battle has mostly been with you know the sexologist people saying you need to understand about addiction so we've yeah we've come from quite different directions and i think that's why we've not had the same backlash over here that we're pathologizing sexual diversity because most of us are trained in it and that were before we ever heard of addiction this fascinates me and i want to just do a quick interpretation for the american audience who may not you know know anything about this so really the field of sexual compulsivity and sexual addiction came in america through the lens of addiction uh, Pat Carnes was teaching 12, preaching 12-step 12 programs. Pat was talking about cognitive behavioral work uh, as being the best method because that's what we already did with addiction. And so we began to win over the addiction world first. And then the sexologist kind of went, well, wait a minute, what are these people doing in our neighborhood? And in England, the concept really came out of sexology, which is where sex, sex in all of its forms that are non-offensive were already considered healthy and normative. And so there was less likelihood that you would be pathologizing homosexuality or even an open marriage or a fetish as sex addiction. And that's a big problem over here is when people grab a hold of it and apply a moral lens to sex addiction and say, oh, well, if it isn't in the Bible then and it's a sin, then it must be addiction. And of course, that makes no sense whatsoever. Yep, absolutely. You've had a different course of educating the public and growing the awareness of the issue. Absolutely. And I think the other difference um, over here is that there is the, the 12 steps are, are very widely used in chemical addiction treatment for sure. But a lot of the therapists working in um, sex addiction wouldn't necessarily prescribe or go straight to the 12 step approach. Yes. And partly that's been because of the lack of the training in that because we're pr primarily sexologists, but also it's been because there have been so few 12S groups, 12-step groups over here in the UK. And it's interesting, when you read some of the objections to sex addiction, uh, particularly pe people like David Lay, I know that other close friend of yours, a lot of them actually are objections against the 12-step. What they're objecting to is if we call this addiction, then we automatically are applying one treatment approach, and that's the 12 steps, um, which no one's ever said. I don't think that's true, and I'm an addict, and I treat addiction. There are many ways to treat addiction. That's one of them. Absolutely, but that's one of the fears, is that if we end up with the label addiction, that that means we will be treating it with an addiction model. And I, the, I have had one person over in the UK who keeps saying, I don't use an addiction model. And I said, which addiction model? And what he's talking about is 12-step. And if I don't use 12-step, it can't be addiction, which, of course, is nonsense. It's only one one program. Let me just clarify. I think the 12-step is brilliant, and I try and get all of my clients into 12-step. But it's not the the model that I use in my treatment program. I see it as, a, as something that's very much supplementary and something that will carry people on. You know, I wanted to just say something briefly about that myself, Paula, is that, you know, here in the States, it's it, you know, where I carry this issue and where I struggle with this issue personally as a real leader in this field, as you are, is that the word addiction to me, it, it only means one real thing in terms of my clients. It has very little to do with 
their actual diagnosis and behavior once I've decided they have this problem, sexual compulsivity, whatever you want to call it. To me, the word addiction is about having access to a lifelong resource of free, no cost support where people will show up for you, hold your hand, show up at your house, help you out. Like you can sleep on their couch, you know, whatever, because that's what happens in 12-step programs. And since we're dealing with a chronic long-term issue that doesn't go away, and even though you may have very good therapy, it can still reappear in a year or two. It would, under stress, like any mental health issue, it would seem to me that having a lifelong opportunity to get support without cost or without having to see a professional once you got the basics down would be a gift. As a social worker, I see that as a gift. So I don't understand how that gets turned around to be a negative. I just don't get it. Unless, and you can tell me this and I'll shut up, unless it's about the stigmatization of addiction, being the fear of that being carried into sex. And my thought about that is, well, if we destigmatized addiction, <laughs> then we could, you know, that's the issue. So Yeah, it's also to do with the, the objections over here. And I think certainly David Lay as well. Um, it's about the what is perceived as the religiosity of the 12 steps. I mean, I think the other key thing that the 12 step provides, and interestingly, I was talking to a client about it um, just today, is that seeing other people already in recovery, people who've made the journey, people who can be, be role models. And certainly, you know, that does, certainly doesn't happen, obviously, in individual therapy. And in my group programs, everybody tends to turn up in the, in the same mess, frankly. Um, and in 12 step, you've got those people who have been there before you you've got the the mentors and you've got the role models who can hold your hand and say recovery really is possible and you know what my life is better than it was mm -hmm. years ago and i think that is the critical thing as well as the ongoing support that they can offer and shame reduction just looking across the room and saying oh i thought it was just me who was this horrible person but here's this very nice young man and he's done the same things i have absolutely Hey there, I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com, that's seekingintegrity.com, or call us at 747-234-4325. I, so I want to ask you a dumb American question before we talk about your work in particular. It relates to this very thing we're talking about. I remember I was in uh, in Greece on holiday in the probably the late 1990s, you know, when it, we were living in a very different world. And um, in this particular uh, environment where I was in Greece, uh, they, you know, part of the, it was like sort of camp with lots of activities. This is very wonderful. It was a British run organization. But in any case, they had smoking and people would smoke all over the campus. And I no longer smoked. And people said to me, oh, well, you know, would you like a cigarette? I said, no, you know, I've quit. And someone said to me, oh, this is so typical of you Americans. You're all, I think I was talking about how there was no more smoking in restaurants or something. And this British person said to me, oh, this is typical of you Americans. You're so prudish. You know, next thing you won't be able to smoke in bars. And next thing you won't be able to smoke in public places. And, and sure enough, within two or three years, people were not smoking in restaurants in England. People were not, you know, while we are perceived as moralistic and somewhat prudish, when it comes to addiction, sometimes alcoholism, I think also, it seems to be easier to get the message across in America around alcohol, around drugs, around cigarettes uh, than it is, and, and I would imagine some ways around sex, than it is in England where people just poo-poo it as being prudish or moralistic. So there's that side of it too. And I guess I, I wonder what you think about my Greek experience uh, around smoking. 
I, th I think I think it's interesting, isn't it? That, I mean, we're talking about America versus Europe. We are talking about one huge continent versus one mahoosive country. And as you know, well, there are so many different areas of America and some are more prudish than others. I mean, it's, it's vast diversity within America. I think one of the challenges that we face is um, generally, probably we would say that in Europe, we are more liberal than the Americans in all sorts of different ways. But I think when you have more choice, it brings more responsibility. And I think that the challenge that uh, we have as a society and obviously our clients face is how do I exercise my, my freedom? How do I exercise my right to express myself as I wish sexually or with a cigarette in my mouth and a glass of wine or whatever else? But recognise the point at which this is harmful to me and, and, and manage that. And I, I think sometimes people are, they get frightened by people who are moderate. They worry that uh, people doing things in moderation are, are prudish. Uh huh. I I have to laugh because I I've never heard anyone <laughs> say that that way, and I think you're absolutely right. It's there, there certainly are folks who are very very liberal, very very progressive, and when they see someone in a particular area, say you know there might need to be a limit or a boundary, or maybe maybe you do need to go to bed by eleven. They get there's a threat. As if, well, that means that they're doing something wrong and they have to change their behavior because I'm living differently or I'm judging them. And that's not the case. It's just, I have to live this way. That's fascinating. I love you, I love you more now, Paula Hoffer. You always expand my mind. <laughs> so tell me what you're working on. What do you see the leading edge of, you know, I, well, I know that you first wrote a book about sex addiction and you wrote about partners and now you're writing about couples, which is, and I, I had always longed to do groups with like eight recovering couples in a room. I've never gotten to do multi-couples work with this population, but I would love to hear about your thoughts about couples and, and what your focus is. Okay, so me, me neither. I've often wondered about doing group couple work. Well, let's but, do that together. Um, oh, <laughs> gosh. I, I, yeah, I can't quite get my head around how that how that works really but anyway um right i can absolutely say that writing the couples book was the hardest book i've ever written hmm. um and perhaps i shouldn't be surprised because couples work has been the heart in, in sex addiction has been the hardest work i've ever done so i've been um, a registered couple psychotherapist for oh how old is my daughter 25 years now so I'm, these you know, are tough Tough couples who are at the breaking point by the time they come to see us. Ah, oh, there is nothing like the couple with sex addiction. And I have to say there were various points, particularly working with a few couples whilst writing the book where I the self-doubt was huge because the couples were you know, arguing and fighting every session and, and nothing's moving, nothing's changing. And I'm thinking, how on earth can I write this stuff when I can't do the work? Thankfully, I then had a handful of uh, clients that were yeah, a little bit more straightforward, so I felt comforted again. But I think writing the couples book, what, what I have, what was so difficult about it is, and you know, you know this from seeing couples, is we have got two people in the room with a completely different perspective on the past, present, mm -hmm. and future. So when I was training as a couple psychotherapist, you're always warned, do not work with couples with a split agenda because it won't work. So if in the assessment session you have a split agenda, in other words, the classic one, I had one of my early couples I worked with, one of them wanted a child and the other one didn't, and they wanted to know how they could compromise. My strong advice was that they probably need to separate, which I, indeed I think they did. I, anyway, um, there are some things you cannot compromise on. You cannot compromise. That's right. 
not be called compromise on your values, I believe. And I think you cannot deny someone a child who wants one or force someone to have a, be a parent who doesn't want to be one. So if you have a split agenda, it won't work. And actually, you need to confront that head on and allow the couple to see that. When you're working with a couple with trying to recover from sex addiction, you have a very split agenda on what has happened currently, what has happened in the past. Can we can we call that a fractured agenda? You, uh, yeah. Yeah, but in every direction. And I think so often what we find is that we have a, you know, like you, I work predominantly where it's heterosexual couples, it's a male addict, female partner. He is in recovery. He's really embracing recovery. He wants to move on. His life is better than it's ever been. This guy has had a rebirth. He has got a second chance at life. Um, is th- this is this is christening for him in a baptism mm-hmm. for her it's the death of everything she's known yes this is a funeral you've got one client who is mourning and broken and nothing will be the same again absolute grief and heartache and betrayal and trauma and all that stuff and you've got the other person going hey i got my life back isn't it great let's move on I can now love you in the way of no. You you could not have two people in two different places. Um, one guy, I, I did some research. You know, I always like to do research for my books. Um, one guy said, and very generously, a client for the research. He said, uh, it was so profound. I got, I found my freedom at the cost of hers, and I thought that just put in, you know, epitomise what what we're facing as couple therapists with those two, two people in the room. And the other thing, of course, is you can't assume, and I think this is, would be one of my criticisms for the other books that have been written for couples, and there really haven't been many at all. But the other books, books written for couples um, have assumed that they both want the relationship to work. And in my experience, I rarely see a couple where they are at the point where they know they both want it to work. Usually the partner is still very much in the place where they have no idea whether or not this can be rescued if they want it to be rescued. And sometimes he might be so early in recovery, he's very sure he wants to get it rescued. But is that actually because you're just trying to get some kind of secure attachment because you've lost your addiction? Or do you actually want this marriage or a marriage? And that's not always the same thing. So also trying to write the book from the perspective that one of the outcomes might be that you separate and this is how you separate in a healthy way uh, rather than yeah, simply fixing it. I'm glad that you give everyone all. I mean, I, I most I would say about 80 to 80 percent of the couples I work with stay together. And that is because that attachment is deeper and more enduring than the immediate crisis of the moment and plus all of the things that they share over time. But I think that's, that's you're saying something a little bit different there. Um, um, yeah, I, I think 80% of the couples I work with stay together, but they're the ones that actually get in front of me. And of course, we both know the people reading the books other people who may never turn up at therapy. Mm-hmm. This may be the only intervention they get is reading this book. And if you can get them in front of a couple counsellor that they have already decided they're doing at least some work on their relationship. Most of them aren't paying an hourly fee to have an argument, although That's it right. certainly seems like it sometimes. So so we've we've got the percentage that are by their own selection ready to work at some level 
or not, you know, at some level on their relationship. But there's all those others who I felt really needed a resource to help them decide whether or not they were ready. I, I used a metaphor throughout the whole book, which I've, I've, I've just remembered. I'm trying to forget writing the book and give myself a break. But the metaphor I used was um, of a relationship that's been hit by a tidal wave or a ship that has been hit by a tidal wave. So the ship represents the relationship. The tidal wave is, of course the addiction. First thing that happens is both crew members get thrown overboard and the first thing that they have to do is get themselves to safety. Often he is trying to hang on to that relationship for dear life, just doing anything he can to try and save it while she's drowning, frankly. So number one thing that they have to do is get themselves to safety. Which means, by the way, if I may say this, Paula, I remember this from my lifeguard training. If someone's drowning and you try to save them, you might get pulled under with them. That's what I remember. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is sometimes where we see those traces of codependency, that word that everybody hates. Not my favorite word, but I'll take it. But because actually they're not recognizing that first you have to save yourself. They all say on the airplanes, don't they? First put on your own oxygen mask. So she has got to get some safe ground some place for her and obviously he has got to get into recovery the next thing you've got to do is drag whatever is left of your relationship back into the harbor so that's so there's the whole counseling process of ensuring they are looking after themselves and how do we get your relationship back into harbor so we can do a bit of assessment on the damage without creating any more damage on route yes and the reality is when you've got that relationship back in harbor they are looking at two different relations she had no idea of all that stuff that was in the hold that secret stuff that's been carrying around for ages he's looking at it probably thinking yeah okay well we'll clear that out and then it'll be fine and she's like, hold on, hold on. Well, and, and, and if I may say, just from, a, you know, a little of my own experience, he's thinking, look, it's been 90 days, two months, three months. You're, you know, I don't want to come home to that. I'm tired of that angry face when I come home every night. I mean, granted, I cheated on you for 12 years, but it's been 12 weeks. Come on. And the reality is for some couples, you know what? That relationship is, is pretty battered anyway. It wasn't that good in the yeah. first place. And what they really need to do is abandoning build some new ones. Um, For others, it's like, okay, yeah, we need to get all that rubbish out of the hold. We need to rebuild that. We need to fill all the holes. We need to make it seaworthy again. But there's some other stuff that we also need to look at that have been issues within our relationship, like lack of intimacy or whatever. If they're going to separate, if the relationship is not salvageable and actually it's going for scrap or whatever, they've got to make sure that they are looking after any other crew members that are on board, such as children. Yes. So that is a critical part of healthy separation. If they're going to rebuild it, then they have got to look at which elements they want to keep, which elements need to be scrapped, which bits are worth saving, and how they can really work together at rebuilding it. And I talk about rebuilding trust as being being the hull of the boat. If you can't get the trust back, it's never going to float again. And to me, intimacy is the engine or the wind in your sails, whatever you want to call it. If you can't get intimacy back, you're going to spend your whole life in the harbour. Intimacy, and and I just want to clarify, intimacy means being known, being seen, being honest, being accepted, not having sex. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, sex as well, ideally. That's what most couples want. But yeah, yeah, it's every, every aspect 
of intimacy and really sort of building that. You know, you know, Paula, I have to say, I, I am so, when I listen to you, what I feel is like, I've always been a big supporter of yours, even when, it, you know, nobody really wanted to talk to you about what you were talking <laughs> about. And you know that, like, even yeah, when I was saying, yeah. I was like, keep going, girl, keep going, girl. And now I listen to you and, and I know why, you know, you really get it. You really have it. You know, I really, I'm just so impressed listening to you. And I hope that the couples listening to you are given some hope and direction. And, and what is the name of the book, by the way, when it comes out? It's a therapy book, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's written for, um, for, for couples. Primarily, it's a self-help book, but also very, very much for um, couple therapists as well. So there's four parts to the book. Um, the first one is surviving the impact. And at the end of that part, there is a crib sheet for clinicians to look at on, you know, the key elements they need to do in that impact stage. Second stage is developing meaning. That's all around the therapeutic disclosure and really understanding what's hit your relationship and beginning to make the decision to stay or leave. And again, crib sheet for clinicians at the back. Then there's a, a part, if you choose to separate, on how you can do that healthily and you can protect children. And the final part, if you choose to stay together, is rebuilding, you know, forgiveness, rebuilding intimacy, rebuilding trust. Um, but throughout it, there are sort of, you know, tips and strategies for clinicians to use as well as for for couples themselves so sex addiction a guide for couples should be out at the uh, the end of this year i hope and will that be available in the states i think amazon you can get everything yeah yeah the, the other books are on amazon so yeah yeah it's true it's so true uh I don't even want to say all the things you can get on Amazon as a sexologist. <laughs> I, I don't think I should say this on a sex and addiction show, but yes, you can't get anything on Amazon. There's no shame on Amazon. Um, Paula Hall, let me tell you what I'm working on and I want to see, I'm going to tempt you on the air in front of folks. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but one of the things that I've been working on very, very diligently is building a website where people could find online live help, in yeah. interactive help, drop-in groups where they can talk to other partners or other addicts, lectures, uh, webinars, uh, quest Q&As. The goal for me is to bring uh, at no cost to people to democratize treatment so that people, like you said, who don't have the resources, who will only ever get to read the book, could still go online and do the exercises, talk to other people with a monitor in the room, get information. And so, you know, my goal, my legacy, if you will, is to bring treatment online for free at no cost for people to be able, who are motivated to really get well. And I wonder if I could talk you into a webinar or a lecture or something, because what you're talking about with couples, and maybe we could talk about the book and put it up there, it's just so so meaningful to me. And I think it's such a crux of what brings people to treatment. Will you be, will you come online and do a webinar with me and we can ask these questions? Absolutely. We always have the old time difference issue, but yeah, absolutely. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying. We've, um, and we were having a bit of a chat before this, weren't we, about, you know, one of the the missions that I've got is um, trying to get services available over here in the UK on the NHS so under our healthcare system um, I already work with a, a big charity over here in the UK and a lot of my resources are available for free through through the Naked Truth project it is yeah it's all very well providing the services under in our therapy rates and that's that's nice for paying the mortgage and I need to pay the mortgage but <laughs> this problem doesn't care how much money you've got it doesn't care how rich you are and we it doesn't care what culture you're from yeah absolutely we we have got to do more as a society not just to help the people that that, that have you know found themselves hit with this but also the prevention side i'm passionate about there being more education 
about the risks of this. You know, ideally as therapists, I mean, we need to make ourselves redundant, Robert. That, that, that's, that's what it's about. A good therapist is working as hard as they can to make themselves redundant as fast as possible. Rubbish business model. That means, in, I have to tell Americans what that means, that you, if you do really good work, you're no longer needed. Exactly. Uh, because you've done the good You're unemployed. Work. Yeah. Unemployed. And, and by the way, which is, you know, uh, anyway, I want to, I just want to applaud you, Paula, not just for being a leader in this field, and this may sound trite, but for being, being a woman and a leader in this field, because this field in the United States, sexual addiction, sexual impulsivity has really been driven by men. And um, to see a woman stand up and say, I have the empathy for men and women who are struggling with the issue and not just rage at them for, you know, all the betrayals, but I also have great empathy for partners. You you stand in a really important position. And again, I you have my great admiration and respect. Folks, Paula Hall. Paula, where can people reach you if they want to, if they want to go over to the UK and take a course, if they want to talk to you online, if they want to buy a book, how can they best get a hold of you and find you? The laurelcenter.co.uk. Laurel is L-A-U-R-E-L. It is the symbol of triumph over adversity. That's why we named ourselves the Laurel Center. Wow. So, or TLC for short. But if you Google Paula Hall, you'll find me. And and therefore, and uh, yes, if you if you Google Paula Hall, like I say, if you Google Rob Weiss and sex, you will find her. <laughs> if you yeah. Google Paula Hall and sex, you will find her. And and thank you for taking the time, Paula. One of my favorite people, and someone who's really, really making a profound difference. Thank you, Paula Hall. Thank you. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term, effective, intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.